January 1st, 1820. In Cadiz, Spain, a small group of Spanish officers, destined for South America, revolted over poor pay and bad food. The revolt, at first, seemed fairly harmless, as it was not uncommon for soldiers in this era to protest over rations and pay. However, this particular revolt would act as the first domino in a long line of ever larger dominoes, which would end up with the rolling of heads, the toppling of governments, and a crisis in the very heart of Europe. The rebels in Cadiz formed a plan. Dissatisfied with the conservative state of affairs, they would march on Madrid, gathering support as they went, and would force the king into reinstating the Spanish Constitution of 1812. Remarkably, on the 7th of March, 1820, they would succeed. Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the Italian series. This episode shall examine the revolutions of 1820 in Italy and the firing of the first shots since the collapse of Napoleon in 1815. In this episode, I shall, like the last episode, again be looking at each state in turn focusing mainly on the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies and the Kingdom of Piedmont. If you have not yet listened to the previous episode, I suggest that you do so, as this episode will largely lead on from there. Now, without further ado, let's begin. The Kingdom of the Two Sicilies in 1820 was not a happy place to live. The reactionary king, Ferdinand I, cared little for his subjects, and concerned himself only with fine dining, lavish entertainment, and hunting. Despite appointing a competent minister in Medici, the kingdom's coffers by 1820 were depleted, and the poor would increasingly begin to feel this financial burden. This coupled with the regional dissatisfaction in Sicily, the strength of the Carbonari, and the frustration that many liberals felt with a lack of a constitution, meant that the grounds for revolution in Naples were fertile. All that was needed was a seed. The seed, as we have seen, would be sown by the Spanish. The Carbonari, the secret society that I have talked about in the last two episodes, 
would be at the forefront of the coming revolution. The Carbonari, by 1820, had a huge membership in southern Italy, and although exact estimates are difficult to find due to the secrecy of its dealings, the extent of its reach may best be exemplified by Ferdinand I's response to his ministers suggesting infiltration tactics. Everyone else seems to be in the Carbonari, so I should join too. A plan of a Carbonarist-led revolution had begun to be formed four years earlier in 1816 with a secret meeting of Carbonarist leaders from different provinces in the suitably cloak-and-dagger venue of the ruins of Pompeii. The representatives agreed to take the Spanish constitution of 1812 as the basis for the Carbonarist constitution and to coordinate revolts that would occur simultaneously in Salerno, Naples, Foggia and Bari. As a big basis of the events will be focused around the Spanish constitution of 1812, I will now briefly explain what the Spanish constitution actually was through the Carbonarist interpretation. Beyond its general principles, familiarity with the Spanish constitution of 1812 was hazy and relied heavily on the ways in which its contents were conveyed by leading Carbonarist Machiaroli. The general belief in any case was that it would be both democratic and federalist, with the general frame of a constitutional monarchy and would guarantee universal suffrage, place the army and the magistracy under the control of elected assemblies, guarantee freedom of speech and religion, and emancipate women from their exclusion from civil life and education, although without giving them the vote. The Constitution's principal aim for the Carbonari, however, was to imprint a national identity on the people and turn them into active citizens. For that reason, great emphasis was placed on creating autonomous and democratic local and provincial government. On July 1st, 1820, in the wake of the successful revolution in Spain, the plan was put into action. It began in the small town of Nola, where a group of 30 Carbonari, supported by soldiers from the local garrison, marched through the countryside to Avellino, to the sound of blaring trumpets and cries of long live liberty and the constitution. There they were joined by two regiments from nearby in Naples, led by Giuliano Pepe a former Napoleonic officer who had fought in Spain and would prove a leading figure in the rebellion. Upon reaching Avellino, 
the rebellious officers were able to convince the garrison stationed within Avellino to support them, and despite the Neapolitan state responding by sending three separate columns to disperse the rebels, the attack was half-hearted and easily repulsed. It was now that the movement began to become a general uprising, as it became apparent that the population was generally sympathetic. The troops and some of the officers who were supposed to be suppressing the revolution had been thoroughly imbued with carbonarist ideas and were less than half-hearted in obeying Nugent's orders. What clinched the success of the revolution, however, was the action of a divisional commander, Giuliano Pepe, who was to become one of the heroes of the Risorgimento, both in 1820 and 1848. He quickly became head of the revolutionary forces and led a march towards Naples, demanding that a constitution be granted. On the 6th of July, Ferdinand I published an edict promising a constitution within eight days. But the period of eight days seemed suspiciously short for the drawing up of a constitution and the revolutionaries rightly believed that they could not trust the king to grant an adequate constitution of his own bat in such a brief period. The Carbonari now began to demand the Spanish Constitution of 1812. The government, therefore, published on the 7th of July a decree promising the 1812 Constitution, subject to certain modifications which Neapolitan circumstances would demand, and which would be decided by a constitutionally convoked assembly. And on the 9th of July, the victorious mutineers paraded through the streets of Naples, with bands playing and black, red and blue Carbonaro banners waving. Pepe was received by the king. The revolution seemed to have succeeded. A new government was appointed, composed of the men who had served under Murat, and Pepe was placed in command of the army. Finally, the king swore an oath to defend the constitution. Remarkably, no one had been killed or even wounded in this revolution. A revolution that in only nine days had effectively toppled Ferdinand's reactionary government, forcing him to accept the demands of the constitution and allowing them to take control of the government. Very few revolutions have achieved so much in such a short time. Yet, sadly for the revolutionaries, this would not be the end. As you may expect, such a revolution in Naples would raise eyebrows in the rest of Europe, especially those of Metternich in Austria. But before Metternich could act, he was hit by yet more news, this time from Sicily. 
The Sicilians, hearing of the successful revolution from across the water in Naples, began a distinct revolt of themselves. Nazelli, the lieutenant general on the island, hastily announced that the Spanish constitution would be adopted and a governing body formed of men from the English period would be established. Yet, this did not seem to sate the crowd's demands. The Sicilians saw this as an opportunity for independence of their own and a chance to break away from the government in Naples despite the new government offering more appeal than the old. Offices of the government were burnt and prisoners were released. By 17th July, the revolutionaries, led by the Maestranze, had established themselves in power and General Nazelli left by boat for Naples. Now, two separate revolutions in the space of 17 days have been successful both in Sicily and Naples, though neither saw eye to eye, and the Carbonari simply saw the Sicilians as confusing the real issues of the revolution. Thus, the revolutionary government in Naples set about destroying the Maestranze in Sicily. The Neapolitan forces would have no problem in the more rural areas of the island, and many of the other Sicilian towns and cities were happy to support the Neapolitans, as they disliked Palermo, harking back to the Italian spirit of Campanilissimo. The revolutionary ruling group in Palermo, therefore, decided to enter into negotiations with the Neapolitan government. Their decision led to a direct class struggle in Palermo. An armed crowd attacked and defeated the civic guard and prepared to resist the Neapolitan army. The attack on Palermo inevitably came on the 26th of September, but was savagely resisted. Neither side could impose its will on the other with the result that again negotiations were started and temporarily an armistice was reached. Eventually, the revolutionary Neapolitan elections were organized and by the 1st of October, Parliament sat for the first time. The deputies were mostly middle-class professional people, but with a few noblemen and priests. They decided to reinforce the army in Sicily and to undermine the revolutionary movement in Palermo by working closely with the Carbonari in Messina, where Palermo was so heartily disliked. But in broad terms, their policy towards Sicily was to be one of repression, and they were even prepared to deplete their forces on the continent to shore up their gains in Sicily. In the meantime, far away in Vienna, Metternich, firm in the belief that no Italian state should have a constitution, was planning to undo the revolution in Naples.
He was fearful, however, of a loss of international prestige if Austria were to be seen directly interfering with the internal affairs of another state. Therefore, he decided to use the Congress system that had been put in place after the Congress of Vienna in 1815, whereby the great powers would meet to discuss the state of European affairs and decide on actions to resolve any issues. Metternich subsequently arranged the Congress of Troppau, which reached the following conclusion, which would later be referred to as the Troppau Doctrine. States which have undergone a change of government due to revolution, the result of which threaten other states ipso facto, cease to be members of the European alliance and remain excluded from it until their situation gives guarantees for legal order and stability. If owing to such alterations, immediate danger threatens other states, the powers bind themselves by peaceful means, or, if need be, by arms, to bring back the guilty state into the Great Alliance. Although a clear statement of intent, this did not amount to any immediate action. Ferdinand I, resenting having had his powers constrained by a constitution, could not stand this status quo any longer. Through secret channels, he reached out to Metternich and asked to meet with him. Metternich thus decided to hold another congress, this time at Leibach, where he would then invite Ferdinand to attend. The congress would take place in January 1821, and it seemed to the government in Naples that to refuse the king the right to accept the invitation of the powers would be tantamount to a declaration of war against them. The king promised to preserve the constitution and not to accept any modifications of it without the consent of parliament. Yet, no sooner had Ferdinand escaped from Naples then he shamelessly declared that he had been constrained by force to grant the constitution, and he immediately asked for Austrian intervention. Metternich, seizing this opportunity, complied. The revolutionary government in Naples had to quickly try and draw up plans in a hopeless attempt to try and stop the vastly superior Austrian army, and despite an honourable show of resistance by Guillermo Pepe around Naples, there was little prospect of serious resistance. The army was badly split between former supporters of Yoki Mura and more democratic Carbonari elements, and indeed the best Neapolitan troops were in Sicily. 
Learning nothing of the previous twenty years, Ferdinand, when restored, immediately set about exacting his revenge on those who had supported or even simply complied with the revolution. Three brothers, the Capozzoli, who lived in the village of Bosco in the province of Salerno and who were believed to be members of the Carbonari, started an agitation for a constitution shortly after the king's return. A royal army of several hundred men moved in and destroyed the village of Bosco with artillery. Fortunately, the inhabitants had already fled. However, afterwards, a military court condemned 22 people to death and some 60 to prison. And another seven people in Naples itself were condemned to death as accomplices and 80 imprisoned. A priest, Di Luca, who was 80 years old, was beheaded. The revolution in Naples had been quashed. Despite its eventual defeat, however, the revolution had once again proved the crisis of legitimacy that many leaders of the Italian states were having to face, and that the ideas of constitutionalism and popular sovereignty not only survived the restoration, but were also widely supported. Despite its eventual defeat, it cannot be said that the revolution was unsuccessful. It had managed to topple the government of Naples and had been able to force the king into legally ratifying a constitution within 10 days of its beginning. It then ruled in Naples for nine months before only being defeated by the might of the Austrian army. The liberals and moderates would learn many lessons from this revolution. As Mazzini would one day later say, one cannot execute ideas. In response to Metternich, Charles Albert and Ferdinand I killing many of his agents. But ideas ripen quickly when they are nourished by the blood of martyrs. The ideas of the revolution in Naples of 1820-21 to did indeed ripen quickly. I hope you are enjoying this episode so far, and I would just like to take this moment to talk to you briefly about the podcast and to answer some of your questions. I have had a few messages and emails recently regarding the audio quality of the episodes. And I am really grateful for all the feedback and I've been trying to change my ways of recording in recent episodes, including recording in different places, setting up the microphone differently and trying to play around with new effects. I feel I have learned a lot from the previous two episodes and hopefully this episode and future episodes begin to have better audio quality 
as I have learnt the best methods of recording. Just as an example, I'm now going to talk without um, the effects I put on to make the podcasting audio sound like what it generally does. If this type of audio which you're listening to now you prefer, then do message in because I'd be interested to know. If you are listening and there is part of a podcast which you don't like or think should be improved, then please do message me, either through social media or on the storyofhistory.com's website. Then I will try to solve the problem or try out something different. I have also received a couple of questions about when this series will be finishing and to answer that question truthfully, I would have to say, I don't know. The series will be continuing right up until Italy finally manages to unify. And the final achievement of Rome as its capital. I am not sure when this will be, possibly in a year from now. However, it may take longer. It takes me a long time to research, write the scripts and record and edit these episodes as I am trying to make them as of high quality as they can be. But it is only me doing this and I have no editing or recording experience. And I am having to manage my university work around it. What I can say though, that whenever the series does eventually finish, I will likely be going back and re-recording these earlier episodes as hopefully, by the end of the series, I will have a better understanding of how to make these episodes of a higher quality. Including this episode. Also, after this series has ended, I will be choosing what next series I do based on what feedback I get from you guys. Anyway, I will be carrying on with the episode where we are travelling to the complete opposite end of the peninsula, the kingdom of Piedmont, Sardinia. In Piedmont, as we saw in the last episode, King Vittorio Emanuele was an exceedingly repressive and reactionary ruler. Having returned in 1814, wearing his powdered peruke and a pigtail, as a sign that the clock was being turned back, and put back it was. He pursued no individual vendettas, but French appointees lost their jobs. Roman law came back to replace the Code Napoleon, feudal customs were restored, and the aristocracy got back their privileged position in society and Jews and Protestants lost the equality of treatment they had enjoyed from the French. And there was even talk of destroying the fine Jacobin Bridge which Napoleon had built at Turin over the River Po, and of stopping traffic on his newfangled road over the Mont Sinis. Finally, half a dozen internal customs barriers were also restored to cut off different parts of the kingdom from each other. Unsurprisingly, this stark 
decisive revision of the state created many enemies within the moderate, progressive and liberal camp. As a result, many began to resist. As in Naples, this resistance would be largely channeled through secret societies. You may recall from episode 1 that the two major secret societies operating in northern Italy were the Adelphi and the Philadelphi, as well as the Masons and the Carbonari. Although in northern Italy the Carbonari were much weaker. In 1818, however, a new secret society was created. Born out of the merger of the Adelphi and the Philadelphi, and was named, unironically, the Sublime Perfect Masters. The new Sublime Perfect Masters did manage to recruit one hugely important member, Filippo Buonarroti. The society was incredibly radical for its age and had three basic aims. Firstly, deism and the sovereign of the people. Secondly, republicanism. And thirdly, the establishment of a communist society. The extent of its goals were not known to all who joined the society, however, so the high levels of members it was able to achieve does not necessarily represent high levels of support for all its goals. What is certain, however, is that Metternich feared them, describing Buonarroti as that secret centre which has directed the greater part of the secret societies of Europe for years. But I must now also talk about another new society which came into existence after Napoleon, somewhere between 1818 to 1820, which had a much more patriotic goal, as might be suggested by its name, its name being the Italian Federation. It did not envisage an Italy that you or I might recognise today, but instead saw Italy as a confederation of northern states. When hearing of the revolution in Spain and Naples, the Italian Federation began planning their own revolution while Austria was preoccupied and planned to use Piedmont to invade Lombardy and unite the two regions. These planners would receive a hugely significant confidence boost for their planned mission when Carlo Alberto, the second in line to Piedmont's throne, showed interest in helping the Liberals' cause, making contacts with the leaders Carlo Asinari di San Malzano and Santore di Santorosa, and seemingly agreed to lead the planned revolution. And when, in January 1821, a group of revolutionary students occupied the buildings of the University of Turin 
and the police dispersed them with a good deal of violence, wounding several of them. Carlo Alberto sent gifts to the injured students. The revolution shortly followed the shootings in Turin, and it began in March at Alessandria, where a small force of officers and soldiers loyal to the revolution captured the fortress of Alessandria. A provisional government was established, and the red, white and green tricolor was raised. This democratic revolutionary government issued a manifesto in the name of the Italian Federation, proclaiming the Spanish Constitution of 1812 and declaring itself independent until the king should have assumed the title King of Italy. On 11th of March, the Kingdom of Italy was declared to be at war with Austria. Back in Turin, the king, Victor Emmanuel, initially did not buckle to the pressures of the revolution to grant a constitution, believing that Austria would quickly send troops to quash the revolution. However, his hand was soon forced when the next day a group of officers in Turin also revolted and instead of establishing a constitution, he decided to abdicate and nominated Carlo Alberto as temporary regent. As the new sovereign Carlo Felice, Victor Emmanuel's grimly reactionary brother, was at that moment absent from the kingdom in Modena. The secret society's revolutionary plan had seemingly come together. Carlo Alberto instated the Spanish constitution of 1812 as the constitution of Piedmont and appointed new ministers, including the formerly mentioned Santorosa. An amnesty was issued to all those who had rebelled in order to attempt to restore order. However, this failed, as the officers in Alessandria, who had rebelled and declared themselves representatives of the Kingdom of Italy, could hardly accept this amnesty, and furthermore, many officers did not see Alberto as the rightful king, and thus, when Carlo Felice issued a statement from Modena, refusing to recognise Alberto's government, even going so far as to indirectly call him a rebel, the revolutionary plan began to unravel. Carlo Alberto fled Turin for Navarra, leaving Santa Rosa now solely in charge of the revolutionary government. Carlo Felice now attempted to garner Austrian support to retake Piedmont, and soon succeeded in doing so. The remnants of Santa Rosa's followers advanced east towards Novara, desperately hoping that the troops there might yet be won over to their cause. Soldiers of Novara 
Will you soon make common cause with the cruelest enemies of your fatherland? No. Brothers, come and embrace us. Come. But with 15,000 Austrians now on the west bank of the Ticino River, their cause was hopeless. And in a skirmish outside the rules of Novara on the 8th of April, they were soundly defeated. The Austrians then proceeded to occupy Alessandria and as a gesture of humiliation, they sent the keys of the city to the emperor and installed garrisons across the kingdom. While the commander of the soldiers of Novara marched into Turin. As in Naples and Sicily, the Piedmontese Revolution had come to an inglorious end. I am now going to read out a long extract from Santa Rosa's own account, as I believe it to have been superbly written and one of the most enlightening, reflective memoirs of the revolutions of 1820 to 21, and one which many men after him did well to learn from. I have now finished my painful task as honestly and usefully as I could. My first object in writing was to show that the revolution took place because Piedmont was subjected to an utterly arbitrary government under which property and persons were unprotected. I had to show that our objective was the aggrandizement of the House of Savoy, the consolidation of its power, but also the emancipation of Italy. So our most sacred duty and our dearest affections were alike involved. I also wanted to demonstrate that our enterprise, however audacious, had good chance of success. But Charles Albert, in whom the nation trusted, confounded our plans by his inaction while in office as regent, and then by his unworthy flight. Our courage might have restored the hopes he had deceived if the Neapolitan people had not also been unexpectedly betrayed. Men who fluctuate between two different policies can be fatal to their country. A liberal prince whose actions belie his opinions must expect the reproaches of posterity. He will be despised by those against whom he had not dared to fight and whose victory he yet prepared by his feebleness and irresolution. My intention has also been to show that true patriots will sacrifice their particular political allegiance whenever the larger interest of their country requires it. 
Once the Neapolitan Parliament had adopted the Spanish type of constitution, Piedmontese liberals could not have accepted any other without bringing discord to Italy. By its justice and moderation, our constitutional government then won popular affection and esteem. The result was that the cause of liberty, in spite of misfortune, could be vanquished only by foreign help. Italians must examine their country's situation and the weakness exposed by the revolt. Ours was the first revolution for centuries, which was attempted in Italy without foreign help. It was the first in which two Italian peoples worked together at the two extremes of our peninsula. Its result, I know too well, has been to subject Italy entirely to Austria. But let the Austrians beware. Italy is conquered, but not subdued. Besides, what was Italy before July 1820? Had it not already been enslaved to the Austrian Emperor by the courts of Naples and Turin, where they promised him to refuse to their people any beneficial political institutions? Our late misfortunes have only rendered our position clearer. Our servitude more direct, our chains more obvious. O oh, Italians, even if we must bear these chains, let us not wear them too openly. Let us at least keep our hearts free. Young men of my unfortunate country, the future is yours. When full of youthful ardour, you leave college and your parents' homes, you will everywhere meet foreigners who humiliate you. No honour or glory awaits you. You cannot be sure you will be allowed even to enjoy your own property, nor is there any pleasure which will not be poisoned by the insults and scorn of your masters and their yet more odious henchmen. They despise you, young men of Italy. They hope that a soft and lazy life will have unnerved you. They think that your courage is of words, not deeds. These tyrants smile as they despise you, and if you doubt this, cross the Alps and you will see what the foes of liberty think of you and what her friends have the right to expect from you. The emancipation of Italy will occur in this present century. The signal has already been given. Our enemies may prepare at their leisure proscription lists and docile Italian princes may continue to serve Austria, for they would sooner reign by her strength than by law. The Austrians may leave them to do so, and thus begin to reap the fruits of their blindness. But all are deceived, because our passion for national independence feeds on the sacrifices which it imposes on us. Austria 
may retard the moment, but that will serve only to make the explosion more terrible. Our ancestors have given us great examples which will not be wasted. And when another European war shall arrive, when Austria then demands our children and money to support her cause, Italians will perhaps know better how to employ their resources. Arbitrary rule is now confusing the great issue which confronts Europe. Italy is more involved in this than other nations. We have to conquer our national identity and win internal liberties both at the same time. Santa Rosa went to join the equally disillusioned poet Ugo Foscolo in England. Like Porro and other exiles from various regions, he lived there by teaching Italian. But he would later travel to Greece, where he fought for Greek independence. And on May 8th, 1825, Egyptian troops launched an attack on the island of Specteria, and Santa Rosa was killed. He allegedly looked too wretched to be worth sparing. I am now edging closer to the end of this episode, but before I carry on and begin to talk about the remaining states and their impact of and from the 1820-21 to 21 revolutions, I would like to briefly remind you that you can find the full script from this podcast online at thestoryofhistory.com where you can also get in contact with me if you have any further questions or suggestions for the podcast. I would also like to encourage you to follow the Story of History's social media as I post on the Instagram and the Facebook regularly with updates about the podcast as well as notices and reminders as to when the next episode will be uploaded. I would just like to add also that if you have enjoyed the podcast so far, then I would be very grateful if you might consider making a small donation to the podcast, as it takes me a lot of time and money to make these episodes, and although I do enjoy the process and will be continuing to make these episodes, if I were to have a small amount of financial help along the way, it would allow me to improve the quality of the episodes by potentially allowing me to buy a new microphone or get a new editing software, which should improve the quality of the listening experience overall. I do not make any money through ad revenue or number of plays, so any small donation really would be greatly appreciated though there is absolutely no pressure nor expectation for you to do so. But if you would like to donate, you can go to the Just Giving page found on my website, or you can find the link in the social media accounts also.
Thank you. I will now re-enter the story with Tuscany. Eighteen twenties Tuscany, although the most enlightened of the Italian states, remained unavoidably dependent in a military and diplomatic sense upon Austria. And in the new atmosphere of repression in Italy, it was clearly going to be difficult for Fernando III to avoid a degree of identification with Austrian policy. In Tuscany, however, the secret societies were not so significant as in Naples and Piedmont because few people had too many qualms with how the state was run. Fernando III and his chief minister, Fossombroni, even treated the secret societies with great respect and were mostly sympathetic to their cause. Despite this, Austria and Metternich exerted pressure on the Tuscan government to take a harsher approach to the secret societies and suspected revolutionaries. As a result, the Tuscan police force was expanded and letters between members of the secret societies were monitored, though few ever stopped. So much so that on one occasion, on being shown by his police correspondence between a Tuscan and Neapolitan Carbonari, Fossombroni said with a laugh that all that needed to be done was to forward the letters to the addresses for which they were intended with the addition of a stamp reading, seen by the police. Unfortunately, however, one recipient of such a letter was so terrified that he killed himself, a consequence certainly not anticipated by Fossombrini. Although the Austrian army on its way to Naples was allowed through Tuscan territory, many subsequent refugees of the revolution were welcomed to settle in Tuscany, something which with no doubt angered Metternich. Tuscany again survived the new state of revolutionary change and forcible restoration with little change to itself, keeping its accolade of being the most enlightened of the Italian states. Travelling northeast from Tuscany, we end up in Modena and Parma. In Parma, very little happened, there was no real agitation from the secret societies, and Marie-Louise simply complied with the wills of Austria. In Modena, however, Francesco IV saw the revolutions elsewhere in Italy as another opportunity to increase his control and assert his authority over the population. Acting through a hardline chief of police, Giulio Bessini. After the arrest of some 50 people in 1822, Bessini was assassinated, stabbed by a student, Antonio Morandi, 
who managed to evade the police and get out of the country. The fact that Morandi was able to escape really highlights the support he had in the crowds whom he emerged from to stab the chief of police. A subsequent tribunal passed some further savage sentences, with nine people condemned to death and 46 to prison sentences. Of the nine condemned to death, however, seven had not been captured by the police and one had his sentence commuted to 10 years imprisonment. But there was one beheaded, a priest, Giuseppe Andreoli. In Modena and Parma, therefore, the revolutions elsewhere did no good for the people living there, and the repression was only increased. We may now finally reflect upon the revolutions of 1820-21 to 21 in Italy. First and foremost, the revolutions had proved that many people in Italy were dissatisfied with the restoration and resisted the new monarchs by joining secret societies in the spirit of Carbonarism. Not all of the people in the societies shared the same views. Some wanted lower taxes, some the old Napoleonic code of law, and others believed there should be more personal and political freedoms, and a few wanted to fight for an Italian state. Likely many were simply attracted by the appeal that secret societies hold. Nevertheless, the coming together of these people for a reasonable period of time managed to topple the governments in Naples and Piedmont, the two states with the largest militaries in the peninsula, if you exclude Austria. And this success cannot be underestimated. But ultimately, they had shown the vulnerabilities that the restored regimes now had. The vulnerabilities that did not exist before Napoleon, and the vulnerabilities caused by the crisis of legitimacy in the new state order. Although the restored monarchs did have the Austrian army available in time of need, this was a trump card. The regimes may have been weak, but the opposition was weaker still, a fact that was rarely recognised by governments and never admitted by the revolutionaries. I would like to say a huge thank you to all of you who have listened this far, and I do really hope that you have enjoyed this episode. I will be back again with the third episode soon, however, the gap between episodes may grow over the coming few, as my university terms are starting again, which means I will have less time to spend working on researching 
writing and recording. I will be aiming to record an episode a month, although it is likely that my upload schedule will be fairly random, but I will keep you updated on my progress on the social media accounts and do feel free to get in touch with me. But for now, thank you for listening.